Hello to all the listeners around the world. I hope you're all safe and sound and ready for a new episode of All is Blau. My name is Caroline Pala, and my guest today is Desiswava Pancheva from Sofia in the Bulgarian Republic. She is the current artist-in-residence in Esther Epstein's Mesar Salon Embassy Zurich North, as well as the founder of Hip Hip Library in Sofia and founder of the Sofia Art Book Fair. Now, if you're into self-publishing, if you have a friend that is into self-publishing, you gotta listen to what Desiswavo has to say. She's a real trooper in the field. She's been doing so much for the world of self-publishing in her region, but also beyond it. So I'm extremely happy that she was my guest here and shared uh, some of her knowledge, some of her insights and her approach to self-publishing what makes her stick to it. We have no time to lose. So here she is, Desiswava Pancheva, Alice Blau, number 12. Here we go. You have a really nice voice. Uh, thanks. Yeah. <laughs> I don't. Also, I have I'm, not heard this type of voice before. <laughs> I could. <laughs> Maybe also the vodka I drank last night helped to smooth it down. <laughs> no, I think there there might be. Um, I mean, there's something I think that probably comes from your mother tongue also. Yeah. No, I mean my voice is a bit particular. Also, when I was uh, like growing up. It was always like lower. I also used to sing in a chorus, mm -hmm. so I was doing the like really low line, the voices that are going... That's like a really big thing in Bulgaria, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, because there's the choirs. folk, 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 yeah, folk choirs. choirs, yeah, yeah. So I think also this trained my voice for a while, because if you really practice this a lot, like this, it's really particular, it's like, it's like an exercise a lot for your voice. And do people do that in school also, or did you, it was an extra no, no, I went to activity? No, I, I went to like a special school. It was a school with really a big emphasis on, on arts and in general um, one of the few schools that you could experiment or like kids could get to know different kinds of arts in a really early stage. So um, apart from singing, there was uh, all sorts of dancing, there was wood carving, there was painting, there was uh, um, lots of musical instruments we could uh, experiment with. So. It was nice. Do you remember, was it you who wished to go to such a school or did your parents choose no, it for you? No, it was you? not me. I think it was my parents at the time. And also the school, you needed to go through, a, through an, like an IQ test to, oh, to wow. go into. So, okay. Like, I mean, you're seven years old and you need to do this test. It's like quite strange. <laughs> and did you score well? Yeah, yeah. Apparently, yeah, otherwise, yeah, otherwise you can't go. Yeah, yeah. So... So yeah. do, do you have brothers and sisters? I've got three brothers. And did they also attend that school? No, no. I was the only one. Are you the... I'm young, the oldest. The oldest. Yes. Okay. That's interesting. And then they chose not to put your brothers in that same school. Well, it was, it's a strange thing because, you know, now that I'm a parent, I know that your life changes and also the way you you see the future of your kids might change. So maybe with me it was that time and then 
something else happened in, in my parents' life and they also got divorced when I was uh, five. So kind of was like um, with my brothers, it was different. Already because I was the first one, they really cared and they wanted the best like for me to go to the best schools and all these things. And I think after after some time, you realize that like, you know, doesn't really make sense pushing so hard. Also, my brothers were obviously very not not artistic. <laughs> so they didn't, you know, for boys, I don't know, it was like kind of, if you see boys are into sports or more like they want to play and hang out, you don't send them to a school like that. Because my school actually, I was picked up every morning at 6.30, I would walk out. Then there was the bus stop, which was just like 100 meters away from my house. By nine, we were at the school, so it went like around picking. Yeah, up that was a long wow. Yes, yes, because the school was not in the. It's not in the city. It's mm -hmm. outside the city, mm -hmm. so the campus was out, and then it was like a whole day school. So I would come back home at five, mm -hmm. so from six thirty to five. You know, not everybody could pull this thing off. You you stay there, okay? You have a lot of activities. It's outside, kind of in the nature, but. Um, I don't think my brothers were really up for that, you know. It takes like a bit of another kind of mentality and dedication. So I was happy, but um, for for a limited time. Then this school became kind of really elitarian in a way. So that's what happens actually. Yeah. Um, a lot of rich people try started trying to send their kids there to also kind of to corrupt the system so they could go in even if they didn't pass the exams and by the time I was uh, I was in the seventh grade I already didn't like it because then for me you know from being a place like a dream place where I could explore my creativity it became like a little bit like a prison like a social prison because you go with the bus you're always with the same people you're in this enclosed like yeah environment and yeah. I couldn't go like normal teenagers let's say just walk out of the school and go to cinema or to walk back home you know I was always connected with this transport it was, it was quite yeah and seventh grade you're like 12 or 13 yeah yeah but already I was feeling like in a prison and I already started hearing this kind of um, uh, phrases like Oh, do you know who his father is, or do you know her mom? You know she's in TV, and, and when I realized that like people <laughs> rely to each other by who their parents were, or like not who they they are personally, I really got so frustrated. I wanted to get out. So then I failed because there is another exam after the seventh grade, and the people that were there initially can easily continue, but I failed the exam on purpose. <laughs> So then you did high school in Sofia? Yes, I did. I mean, I started in another high school afterwards, which was like kind of the complete opposite of that. So it was my the school in my neighborhood where I lived. So I really wanted just to walk out and cross the road and be, you know, go yeah, to school. Yeah, go to school independently. Yeah, and that's what I it, it happened. So I went into that school. It was um, quite a good school, but also very different yeah in the you know in the hood and it was uh, kind of the time where in this neighborhood was not so easy to live like 90s in Bulgaria was a time where when a lot of I don't know a lot of bad things started happening all of a sudden you know coming out of communism and 
being in a really um, isolated uh, space, protected in a way from, from the Western influence or not even Western, even from the East, you know, because actually what happened in the night is that a lot of drugs started coming through Bulgaria from Afghanistan, all the heroin. So it was like kind of all of a sudden all these things came in porn, you know, pornography or in general sex and, and uh, drugs and prostitution, like pff, it just exploded in mm. a way. Mm. And mm, pff, yeah, I saw it growing up. What <laughs> about the war in Yugoslavia? Yeah, I mean, the, we, I don't know, I don't really remember. My grandfather was a diplomat in, uh, in Belgrade, so I know he was really... Did he stay? Was that. he able to stay there or no, did he no, have to come back? No, he was not there, of yeah. course. Yeah, no, of course. No, because I imagine if there was like a raging war in, in, in Germany, I mean, I would be scared shitless. It's Yeah, but we are, very you close. know, it's very different. People in the Balkans are used to wars. Like, it's not the same. I think if something happens here in Switzerland... It's going to be so much more uh, like an emotional and psychological impact for the people because they read like I think it's really such a safe place to be. It's so safe also for your mentality. It's like so easy to fall asleep and to be in this perfect system where you're taken care of, you know, you just pay your taxes and then forget about problems <laughs> in a way because... We are used to wars. We are used to like just feeling that the war is right behind the corner. I mean, everything that happens in in the Middle East as well, and Syria, and every. I mean, yeah, we Turkey. We see it tr through the the people coming in, and then when you have such an Im immediate contact with people coming from a place of war, then you experience it more. Like you know, it's more real to you. So when do you, you feel that the refugees are more integrated than they are here? I mean, I don't know what integrated means. I don't use these Are they terms. visible? Of course they're visible. There's there's like thousands of them, maybe I don't know, maybe even a million. I'm not sure. Integrated, I don't I don't know what it means. And also refugees, I don't know what it means. I just know that there's this all these people that are just running for their life. And And it's really strange because I hear a lot of like judgmental um, kind of approaches to this uh, to this problem when people say, "Okay, we've been to the Balkans. We saw how, you know, <coughs> we saw the conditions in which the refugees live, like on the floor in this old factory. People are piled up and sleeping over each other." Yeah, but sorry, but Switzerland is one of the countries that lets in the the smallest number of refugees in the West. Like, you know, you can't judge us because through our border every day there's like thousands of people coming. Okay, maybe the border control is not so good, whatever the, the, the matter is, but these people are there. And so when they become kind of like such a, a big number, and, and obviously the Bulgarian government can't even take care of their own citizens. So this is not, it's not a matter of taking care of these people, but they're there and there's so many and we live with them, you know. For me, it's really normal to to walk out and to see some people and then to talk to them and then say, oh, do you want me to bring some clothes to you tomorrow and arrange to meet somebody I never know to give them clothes for my kids or or to, 
I don't know, just you see so many people in need and it's it's completely different. So this is like being really realizing what's the effect of the war because once your country gets wiped out of the map, once you don't have anything that's yours, once that once your children are threatened with dying like at the beginning of their life, this is a war. And then you run for your life and you go anywhere and Bulgaria is not such a bad place to be. <laughs> you know. Or anywhere else. I think what I meant is, I mean, because the war is going on for five years now, and if, there's been a war you, for more than five years. Yeah, always there. The I mean, since the Americans set foot in in that region and started coming after the oil, there's been a war like for for decades now. I mean, in different situations and shapes, and actually the war in Yugoslavia is kind of a milder version because the Serbians they recovered. You know, it's a country that like could take care of itself. You know, okay, the, the, you still you go to Belgrade, you see these buildings in the center, like still with the holes from from the bombs. You know, and it makes an impression. But then you look around and you see like it's an it's a a life place. People are living and creating, and they got over it. You know, but I don't think this can happen. Let's say in Syria or in Iraq or. You know, it's not so easy to, for them just to, oh, well, let's let's get over it. Yeah. What I was trying to ask when I said, um, are they integrated? Is just if you can observe. I mean, people who have been there for uh, several years, can they participate in civil life? I, I guess that's yeah, that was the of question. Of course, of course. But this is also always a matter of who you are and how you do your life in general you know people there's people that are hardly integrated in their own countries <laughs> mm -hmm. so i mean for instance where my studio is it's a really interesting uh, area it's like the old center where old jews used to live in in the 30s and 40s so kind of really aristocratic uh, it used to be now it's a little bit decadent because uh, yeah a lot of the buildings are kind of almost derelict and just falling apart and there's a lot of squats and also refugees living around that area but there is this guy called Freddy Freddy is from Iraq and he opened right next to my studio a restaurant mm -hmm. called Ashur Bani Pao and what does it mean um actually I don't know <laughs> to be honest uh, but I think I think it's maybe like a region or where he comes from or Ashur Bani Pao but uh, he he's amazing like he cooks there it's really like a place that some people don't want to go to because it really feels like you're just visiting him you mm. know all the all the plates all the dishes they're like different kinds of forks and knives nothing fits nothing is like it looks almost like a little bit dodgy in a way but he's amazing he cooks like uh, this interesting mixture of uh Mediterranean and also kind of uh, um, Eastern and kind of exotic also dishes and every day you just go there and he's got five meals and just serves on the table there's a big table people sit together and this guy okay I know him for like I don't know seven years now five seven so he he really, he's really well integrated. You know, he kind of became famous around this area and people going there. For instance, when I was organizing my festival last year, 
uh, that's where we made like the the dinner with all the guests. The book fair or a different yeah, festival? Yeah, the book fair. The, the book, book fair. fair. Yes. And so that's where I brought all my guests to have dinner. Excellent. So it was really kind of interesting to observe because okay, some of them were this really high cultured and uh, you know people coming from uh, from the Netherlands and. You know, somebody wearing a <laughs> Yoshima Moti dress walks into that place, and it's it's really nice to observe the from from being like ah oh, a little bit. What is happening? This is a bit dirty, or is it is it clean? And then just getting all this food in front of you, and he serves a soup, a lentil cream soup, but in a plastic cup, like yeah. a coffee cup. <laughs> so you get this plastic cup of lentil soup, and you're like. Okay, <laughs> what's going on? And then people are just, mm, mm, mm. and he comes out and he talks to everybody like he, you know, he speaks Bulgarian, he speaks English, and he just starts being a host. And yeah, I think he's more integrated than a lot of Bulgarians I know. So there's also other examples, of course, but um, I don't think it's difficult to be integrated. In Bulgaria, it's probably much more easy to to do, start doing something and to become something than maybe in Switzerland. Mm -hmm. Because actually, yes, the people that make it or like the people that start uh, having a normal life, they really need to do something. They can't be taken care of. There's nobody to take care of you. So this is the real integration for me, you know, like starting a, a, a business or doing something or meeting people or becoming local in a way. Otherwise, you can be integrated for many years, just uh, getting the money from the social <laughs> and what? Yeah. Are you really integrated? You live somewhere like in a dodgy place, you hardly go out, you hardly do the things that other people do, you hardly meet local people. This is not integrated for me. So I think there are p people, but it's so many of them. There's no way they can all or be that doing that well you know yeah and a lot of people are traumatized yes and there's a lot of people that really don't want to be there mm -hmm. so many people kind of ended up there because they couldn't make it to western europe so the idea for them was to go to germany or to switzerland or you know anywhere just west and they didn't make it that far so they don't really want to be there because they want to be somewhere else, you know. The grass is always greener on the other side. Uh, it's not It's not easy, especially with uh, for the people with kids. That's, that's really the big problem because, you know, it's kind of an idea that you're in a transition phase, so they don't really think or know how long they're going to be there. Actually, I think only the people that realize, okay, I'm going to be staying here. This is for long term. Then they start thinking in a different way. But most of them, they really, I don't know what they're hoping for. Maybe going back one day, maybe moving somewhere else. So with the kids, it's really important. You have a kid that's growing up and they need to go to school. They need to learn a language. They need to do something else. They can't just be refugee kids, you know, playing in a derelict playground in front of a factory and so I think that's the problem because there's going to be a generation of kids growing up in other countries and these kids they you need to take care of them and they need to learn the language they need to 
yeah, you know. Yeah, I'm not sure if it's that different if you're here or in Bulgaria. I don't know. No, it's not that different. I mean, you're you're a fugitive kind of, so you are pushed against your will to leave your country, to leave your family. That's also very common. So like some people, they really like left their brothers and sisters or their mom and dad because they were too old. They couldn't make the journey, you know, behind. So once you do that, doesn't matter where you end up, you know, you can even be the next in the next town, but it's just like you break with your roots. It's not like, okay, I went to study here and there and I traveled around and then I came back and my family was there for me. So I never really felt like I'm leaving anybody behind. But this is actually the, I think the biggest uh, trauma comes from, yeah, knowing that you left people behind and knowing that you're actually doing okay compared to what they might be going through. But yeah, but also there is a lot of, I mean, just the same way that there's brainwashing and there's media influence on the other side. So like, you know, us be, not being refugees, the way we, some people have stereotypes and there's a lot of crap coming from the media. Believe me, there's a lot of also brainwashing going on their side. So it's something that people rarely talk about the kind of duality of the situation because a lot of them also are brainwashed from especially coming from all these NGOs and, and organizations like uh, they're supposed to take care of them or support them so I think this is something that they really need to take it easy sometimes because they really give them such a such a hard uh, time having all these expectations or like showing them a reality which is actually not so real and then once you once you see yourself as a victim it's really hard to be integrated that's also you know if you're victimized you need to be taken care of so if you're a victim somebody needs to help you and you're suffering and you're like stuck in this you're box passive. yes so this is also another side of the coin you know i'm not like blind just saying yeah you know they're we're just we don't know what it is to be a refugee and da, da, da. but also a lot of these people actually struggle because of the expectations they have to to receive um, support or yeah anyway being a victim is not a good position no <laughs> no yeah i mean we can't we can't see what they're going through, but I, I'm sure like soon our lives are also going to change dramatically. So maybe it's good to be in touch with that reality. What are you referring to? I'm referring to the, the shit hitting the fan. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm referring to the world currently, like the major political powers in the world being... Okay, America and China and, uh, and let's say Russia, okay? So all these three are led by egomaniac, self-obsessed, self-absorbed retards. <laughs> 
And this actually, okay, this is fine, you know, these people do exist, but it means like a majority of the population actually goes for that. And that's what uh, you reflect yourself into your leaders. So if this is the reflection of the growing <laughs> population of the earth, it's going to be interesting what happens in the future. So I see like, I don't know, Trump. What is Trump? What is this? This is this is uh, something I can't explain. <laughs> How did it happen? It's you know. So let's see. The story you were telling about you bringing your friends or your guests from the art book fair to the restaurant that is hosted by the Iraqi mm. men. Uh, it reminded me, you know, uh, after the suicide of Anthony Bourdain, I don't know, did you watch his programs when he went? He would, like, travel them, and yes, to yes. adventurous places. Yes, yes. And uh, what I thought was interesting then after his death was uh, what he said about how he would be much more generous or he would cut much more slack to people in faraway countries like for instance he's somewhere in southeast asia and he knows that his hosts are like maybe super homophobic but still as as soon as there's food on the table you have something that you can relate to mm -hmm. uh, and i was listening to a, actually to a podcast uh, of an old talk with him from 2011 i think And he said he wished that he could um, be in America and cut his people as much slack as he cuts other, you know, in his own country, he would be very judgmental as soon as he knows, okay, this is a Republican voter or this is someone who has these ideals or whatever. Um, he would like cut himself off and not even talk to that person. But um, then he goes to... Uh, or he goes to the Middle East and he knows they're like super anti-Jewish, but still he can actually uh, sit around the table with them and not get into that controversy. It's something that uh, made me think of how am I, how am I in these situations? Am I also, I mean, I think I, obs I can observe that with me too here, that when I, go away I'm for some reason these people there yeah it's maybe it's also because you kind of depend on them because you're a guest you're yeah. a guest you're on your own and and so you yeah you cut people a lot of slack because they're generous to you they open the, their homes to you and so you you might actually kind of just you know close an eye and be okay that's Let's just not get into this. Um, and here where I'm living, I'm just much more, okay, that's not my people. I'm. Yeah, I think it, there's... It some, just gave me something to think about. something about also traveling and being a foreigner yeah. in, a, in a stranger somewhere. Because also this is, oh, this is one of the oldest, uh, you know notions political or i don't know sociological you know the notion of citizenship so when you're a citizen and you feel that you're part of a community so this is your 
it can be your country, it can be your co commune, it can be your underground movement, it can be your squad, you know, it can be your club, it can be your library, but you feel part of something. So then you are proactive and then you really uh, express your opinion and then you're critical in a like constructive way because you're, you know, you're there, you're going to be there, you live there, you, you, you need to make a change, you feel part of something bigger. When you're traveling and when you're abroad or visiting or just, yeah, being guests somewhere, it's a nice state of mind because you're still, you're still ju judging, you're still um critical in your thoughts but there is this notion of like not being responsible for mm -hmm. that place or for those people so then mm -hmm. then you really can cut the slack yeah <laughs> you know and 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 this is actually so nice and for me also being here was quite kind of a similar experience because it activated a lot of my critical thoughts about the world and about my life about uh where we are right now but but then i know that the moment where when I go back home, then I can process that, and then I can make something out of it. I'm not allowed to be judge judging or judgmental. Not not allowed. I don't allow myself. I am allowed, and I don't want to be uh, going in conflicts. You know, you can't go somewhere and just start saying to people, "Hey, fuck! This is so shit. Your system sucks." You know, wake up. You know, this this is their their place. This is their their life, you know, where do you come from? Nobody gives a shit of your opinion. So then you sit on the table and you share the food yeah, or the drinks, you know. You watch the football game or pretend you're watching and you get drunk and that's it. You don't express opinions, you know. Obviously, in the back of your mind, you may be thinking like, oh, this game... You know, it's so political. How can people say, like, football shouldn't be political? How can they judge somebody who made a sign of his lost non-existing country? Because this is all you've got left, like your symbolism. So once you try to take symbolism away from people, what do you leave them with? Like, are they robots? And Or all about this kind of football slavery, which I believe it exists? Or not only football, all sorts of big sports... You know, so many of these people, if they're not playing the game for this team, they won't be here. Mm -hmm. they, they, you know, yeah, yeah. It's it's not a, it's not a game. It's not a joke. This is very political. So you can't, uh, yeah, normally. So for the listeners, I'm just gonna say, <laughs> you know, we're talking about the soccer game when Switzerland and Serbia, Serbia were yes. playing against one another. And uh, three players uh, showed the double eagle, made a hand sign, maybe more. I mean, I just, but it was uh, huge. I mean, it was crazy. The comments in yeah, the yeah, exactly. Oh, this I is was what, like actually, for two I hours. I just read comments of people. It was crazy how much <laughs> that generated. Yeah, I don't know. Yesterday, uh, on my way to watch the game. I uh, actually I read up a little about on the Bulgarian national team <laughs> and I saw that they were uh, fourth in 1994. Yeah, in 94. Do you was... remember that? You were eight. Yeah, yeah, I remember that, of course. That must have been Stuichkov great. And Lechko. Yeah, I mean, honestly, I don't. I, I never was so excited about this game and also because. I'm kind of brought up by a feminist, I think. So 
also being a feminist, I really dissociate from all these kind of masculine power play games or like something to be dominant to show that you're still a hunter, (laughs) you know, because for me, football is like the epiphany of that. Yeah. It's kind of, you know, also yesterday watching all the people going crazy after the game and actually for me, it's really interesting to observe that this is a time when like people really get their primal uh, people, men mostly, like their primal instincts out, yeah, yeah. and they bec- they become like animalistic in a way, you know. Yeah. So yesterday morning, the the front page of the free newspaper, the Twenty Minute, was just a collage of photographs of uh, Swiss soccer players that were like screaming like warriors and like you know flexing their muscles like to- i mean it's totally wartime yeah it's exactly like wartime exactly also this is something i was just saying with uh, just to a friend that wars exist around us in so many shapes and forms so football is kind of it you know it's funny because i remember uh, as a child growing up and then my grandfather he told me like this is a really good game because it brings people together so like when two countries playing like it was kind of like a diplomatic event also you know there was a whole ritual about like learning about each other's countries and then the game was over and then people would still get together and talk i mean he was a diplomat so maybe he had another perspective but still i kind of had the idea that these uh team games especially the ones where people are represented by their national teams they were a way to connect and to meet to go somewhere like to play to meet, you know like like a festival with with uh, with sports and then the last um i don't know the last 20 years i've observed completely the opposite happening and now it's to an extreme point with football i don't i mean i just see it in another type of war another type of power play domination also like you know <laughs> you watch a game and then half of the time there is this cut uh, cut shots of putin sitting with i don't know who and i mean what is it about mm. is it is it the game well <laughs> and so i think people just really need that kind of thing you know they they need the emotions, they need to get out and to be wild. Also, kind of after these games happen, if the team wins, like last night, Switzerland, so then everything is allowed. Your excuse to do anything. It's kind of your your ticket to go to wow land. <laughs> and, Absolutely. And and it's kind of a a legal a legal yeah, it's way like a free like, pass. Yeah, free pass. Yeah, for one night or whatever. So you were saying, you because you were saying that you didn't really grow up watching soccer because you grew, you grew up with your mom, and earlier you were saying that your parents divorced when you were five. Yeah. So you stayed with your mom. Yeah, yeah. my and mom, your brothers, my mom and my uh, one brother. My first like. The brother came after me, Trifon. He's from my mom's first marriage, so it, we have the same, completely the same parents. And then my mom got a um, second husband. He was from Italy. And then my second brother came from that relationship. 
And actually, my stepdad, he was watching a lot of sports, formula and football. and But he was not, I mean, he was the kind of person that would just sit like that, cross his legs, smoke a cigarette, you know, drink a glass of wine and watch the game. Mm. It was completely another type of personality. He, he was very cultured. He was very sophisticated. So I never uh, had like crazy football parties at home and uh, men shouting and taking off their shirts you know <laughs> he was really like observing the sport you know he was a sports lover and so i never really but felt was he from italy yes, directly italy. or was he of italian origin no, no, he was from italy from genova okay so yeah. did you go to did you visit yeah, genova of, with of him of course of course i mean he died um uh, um he got sick with cancer and he died when i was uh 14 mm-hmm. so then this was exactly exactly after that happened i i moved to brighton to study in the college but yeah i mean his his uh, parents they were alive till like a few years ago and we were visiting them regularly um and yeah i don't know it's like a normal family you know yeah was not nothing was different between my dad and my dad's family and my second dad and his family. I just for me it was family. You just had two dads. Yeah, yeah. One was more like a friend <laughs> and the other one was really taking care of me. But yeah, I had two dads and it I think it's a, a lucky chance. <laughs> so what brought you to Brighton? I don't know actually what brought me. I mean <laughs> I don't know how things happen in life. You go, so end up somewhere. But uh, probably the fact that I didn't want to be uh, in the system of schools that I saw in Bulgaria. So, okay, the English like educational system is really structured in a way that I can relate to. So after you turn 15, so after the primary school, you have a choice to to have a profile so like to restrict your knowledge and to to choose and have a like three or four years you can learn just certain things and then with these things you learn you go to university so they don't have the whole uh, basic yeah but it's crazy that you're because i mean i remember when i was uh 12 i had to choose which um high school i go to And I mean, my parents, they didn't give a shit which one I wanted to go to. I just had to go to the closest one. That was also a state school. Well, I think it was also coming from my stepdad because while he was still alive, he could see that I'm kind of an anti-establishment person. Mm -hmm. So he could also see that I was going through like a crisis in terms of losing the authorities mm-hmm. and and like starting to really not respect my teachers mm-hmm. or in general the process of learning so this is very dangerous you know if you lose touch with uh, with curiosity and with uh, you know the drive for having new knowledge so then this can happen in school actually this can be the worst thing that happens to you i know <laughs> yeah like you, you can really cut your your connection to the world and so I think he sensed that in a way so then kind of was supportive for my idea to to go elsewhere to study but also when he passed uh, away for my mom like she was in this dark space you know and 
I don't think she even realized what was happening, that I was going there, you know, her her 14 years old daughter was like going to live elsewhere. So actually the years after was a process of uh, healing for my mom and for my family, but I also felt like so guilty in a way. Maybe that's like the closest I could relate to the refugees <laughs> because, because I knew my family is like falling apart and my mom is suffering and my brothers were still there, you know, and I was elsewhere and I was actually enjoying myself mm-hmm. or starting to have a taste for life, for for amazing things, you know. So it was kind of a mixed experience with uh, happiness and sadness. <laughs> yeah, because your brothers were super young. Yeah, they were super young and also kind of, I don't know, I, sometimes I feel like I should have stayed to take care of them and to help my mom. And, But I just, it was arranged, you know, it was all set. So I just went and mm-hmm. did what what mm-hmm. I was expected to do. And yeah. So that was high school in Brighton? Yeah. Or like a pre-college? It's pre-college. It's called, I mean, what I did was A-levels. So it's uh, actually, it was three years and it's, like very specialized kind of um, school that you go th- through. And then only with the things that you've studied. So, for instance, I was doing history of arts, graphic design, photography, international politics and British literature. So these were my choices. So I could only apply to university with something related or to some kind of program that you know, these were on the list. Yeah, so yeah. I can't, I mean, obviously you go through this uh, preparation, you can't apply to, to chemistry. Chemistry, yeah. yeah. You can't. Yeah. Because actually... It makes sense. Actually, you don't go through, through a, an extra test to go to the university. Mm-hmm. You just get your scores from the past year. So obviously, yeah, this yeah. is what happens. I mean... School is one of the worst things that can yeah, happen to a child. Up. <laughs> yeah, school up. is, I mean, I think even earlier than school, I just, you know, I've started this work where I'm photographing uh, baby girls and I'm trying to, I'm just trying to, I mean, the reason why I started doing this is because I was so shocked when you, when you Google girls, you just find images of completely sexualized girls. So I, I started to, I just want to find an imagery that is not so, even not sexualized, of course not, but also that is not so gender technically charged, not so yeah, charged yeah. with gender. And at this really early age, it's the easiest, I feel like. But still, the, then you see how the girls um, get dressed And I mean, I say they get dressed because they don't dress themselves yet at that age. And then I feel that it's so much violence to to do to a child, to just press it in that gender costume that they have to wear. And all of this, I mean, it makes it makes me physically feel awkward. It's crazy. And then, of course, with school, it's like amplified. And yeah, yeah. It's really so much, <laughs> so much. And it's really so funny that you go through all this shit and dressing up or making up and learning or trying to fit in a 
in a box, in a frame, and then all this you do just to realize who you are at the end. Mm. So like just to go back to yourself, you know, mm. it could be like so easy just to be yourself the whole time and not go through this <laughs> shit and try to be like a thousand other people. Um, Did you go through different phases? Oh yeah, of course. I'm still going. Okay, I like mean, what's, very, what's the phase right I'm now? I'm a very like morphy kind of person. I don't know what's the face, but just I feel like I'm constant. Like you know, when people say when you're on drugs, like mm -hmm. you, when you're high, and you say you feel that you can sense your hair growing. Mm -hmm. So I have this feeling constantly, like not only about my hair, but just m about everything, about my emotions, about my body, and everything is like I feel feel it's moving, it's mm -hmm. changing. So I'm not really constant. I mean, in a way, I've. Uh, I have my constitution and then and the things that I really stick to, which are my core. But around that core, there's everything is in in constant uh, evolution or let's say transformation. I already got used to it, so not having this like uh, staticity or like feeling that you're grown up or that you're you know that you know yourself so well. Because sometimes I surprise myself, like what things I do or things that come up to my mind. It's like another person coming from from nowhere. But for other people to be around me, it, it can be confusing and, and unsettling. Because generally I think people are, um, they're not so happy with changes or especially later in their life you know when you're young you're more adventurous and it's more part of it also yeah, mm. yeah. but uh, after later in life it becomes kind of unsettling to have this woman around you that <laughs> constantly <laughs> who is <laughs> that <laughs> yeah but for me it's fine it's also a way not to be bored because one of my worst fears is apathy and boredom so like when i start f just remotely feeling that I'm getting bored, I, uh, you know, I reinvent the situation and I hate routine. So. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so before we start talking about what you're doing now, all your, um, your personal investment and your activity in the self-publishing world, let's maybe go back to after You graduated in Brighton. You you went on to study photography in Milan. Yes. Did you go back <coughs> home to Sofia first, or? Oh well, briefly, mm -hmm. briefly. But like, I didn't take a break or something. Mm -hmm. I don't know. I just went straight to to my to my next stage. <laughs> so was the choice to to go to Italy? Was it probably influenced also by your step step? Maybe, but also it was influenced from living in in britain for three years it was definitely not my thing okay i mean there was a lot of good things happening a lot of uh, you know learning and experience and and really rich culture and musically like this opened my mind so much because yeah britain is really rich place for for concerts for bands you know it's it's like such a long uh, conversation we can have about that but <clears throat> from another point of view, I really didn't feel like this is my my place or this is the life I want to have. I didn't like the climate. <laughs> I didn't like the food. So I'm a very easygoing person, but one thing I really care is my food. I really want to have good food and to be able to experience it in a nice way. 
So in in England, I felt really like deprived of my basic human rights to have sunshine and you know good, good food. food. So Italy for me was kind of a because obviously my stepdad, so I knew Italian perfectly. And also because I knew a lot about the culture already. And also because it's really close to, you know, kind of this Mediterranean, like also very close to the Balkans in a way. I've, the mentality of certain people, especially in the south of Italy. So for me, it was more like going to a familiar place, you know. Mm. And of course, I was like, once you get into this... Uh, learning process and you, your curiosity about the world and then you want to learn more and you want to go elsewhere you want to see other places and so this was also a drive you know i didn't want to go back home so did you produce work in milan yeah, yeah what I kind of produce. work well actually i i graduated in photography but with uh with video mm -hmm. so i i mean the last the last year of being there after i got through this like very um you know traditional in a way um course so dark room and still life and and all the practicalities and technicals and i was really into it but then i i had a chance to also experiment with video which was not you know it was not meant to be actually so important for me but it became so this is when i realized i'm so related also to sound and to motion to movement and i also wanted to learn the um the techniques so so for me it was also like a challenge i said okay yeah i can do a really nice uh, exhibition and take photos you know and graduate but i could also just push my limits for one year so the last year i just decided i want to do a video which was okay you know so what was it about well it was about this, it was a short, a really short kind of experimental movie. It was about this, um, how do you call them? Like insects that go through a phase of um, become like coming out of the cocoon and like a metamorphosis and then they come out. And actually we shot it in Bulgaria on, on a lake. So we made like a plat a floating platform of wood and on that platform... Uh, my friend who's dancer and performer, she she was performing this uh, kind of ritual of coming out of her body and becoming something else. And I made like a special costume, which was this uh, a kind of Michelin-looking <laughs> costume with uh, wire and like a white structure that looked really like a big white worm, you know, in the distance in the lake. And then I also made... Um, some sound to go with it so it was uh, like a narrative with my voice a little bit broken with uh, with sound and it was the story of this uh, butterfly or whatever so it was really i mean actually i was quite shocked that everybody liked it so much because i didn't know it was like i was not expecting to be good or do something special and then I, yeah, and when I showed it in uh, my school, like people were very happy with it. And I was also happy, but then I lost interest. Like I, I didn't want to do this anymore. It was kind of, I don't know, like yeah, I just wanted to do that. Yeah, now that you know how to, no, how it's done, then <coughs> it's not so interesting it's anymore. Diff it's different because with photography, for instance, and with <coughs> graphics, I still practice it a lot and I reinvented 
but with this, I guess it was also my way of like growing out of this <laughs> uh, phase. So just to combine, because I had so much influence from visual point of view, from musical point of view, from uh, you know the things I've been reading, and then also switching languages all the time. So this kind of I couldn't just express that in a, a photograph or. It's something two-dimensional in a way. So I needed to put everything into one. And this this is what really video can allow you to do, you know. You can build things, you can make things, you can record and have your voice. And it was nice. So where did you catch the self-publishing bug? Mm. I actually caught it later when I... When I was already back in Sofia, after living in Italy for an extra year after my graduation, and I was trying to to do some commercial work, so working as a photographer for a newspaper and slash magazine, mostly making portraits of supposedly interesting people. <laughs> Yeah, this didn't work for me. Firstly, because m the money was ridiculous, so it was really not well paid. Second, because I wanted and I tried to use only analog, so for me it was like a process and then they were impatient. Obviously, you need to deliver something yeah, like yeah. on time and this is almost impossible. But yeah, this also learned, like taught me in a way that I can't be part of this fast culture thing, you know. Yeah, I could take digital photos, you know, I have, I also take them now with my phone, but and then I decided just to quit that and I started working and helping out my mom with the family business, actually that my stepfather had started. And then I, I could earn money in that way, doing something which is, let's say, not really what I imagined myself doing but because it, you're doing it for your family it's kind of like it it motivates you in a different way but also I learned about business and I learned that was the clothing yes business. yes mm -hmm. so yeah after like several years I became the manager of the company and then I, I I learned about everything that is behind the business which is a lot you know the paperwork the um the employees, everything related to that, the fact that, you know, you need to be kind of create a structure and, and take care of it. Then I could do something on the side, which was more what like I would like to do. So I opened my first studio slash gallery slash residency slash the place I lived <laughs> in. And, um, and then one year, almost even not a year, half a year later, I met these two girls. Uh, they were also Bulgarian, Rossi and Raya, and they were actually like already starting and doing like something like a self-publishing project uh, called "Blood Becomes Water." Because yeah, you know this saying, "Blood is thicker than water." Mm -hmm. We have a saying, "Kraftavudane uh, stava," which means blood doesn't become water and, and their <laughs> their idea is that blood becomes water anyway so they were doing this like self uh, <clears throat> curated um, 
editions where they would invite artists to, to interpret like a topic. So every issue would have a, an, a team which were quite interestingly formulated uh, the topics of, of these magazines, let's say magazines, they're not really. And then they would invite artists um, that some of them they never met, just write an email to somebody they've seen their work uh, on the internet and say, hey, hey, do you want to take part in our next project? But was that international or national? Yes, yes, it was international, mm -hmm. very international. Actually, in, in some of their publications, there's some really good and now kind of emerging artists that maybe at the time were just part of an underground or, yeah. Also, a lot of their work is driven by music, so it's very kind of like rock and roll oriented. The aesthetics as well and the selection of the people and, yeah, so I kind of um, really connected with them. We had a lot of things in common and... Um, at the time, I was uh, curating uh, shows at the at the studio, so anything really. I was I was experimenting, you know, what what I can do or how I can push the limits of the space, and from performance to photography to like mapping, video mapping, and some experimental musical stuff. We had parties, we had concerts, anything. And one day there was like a really strange space, a little bit like the the room we're in. So a little corner, um, uh, almost like you had to bend over to get into that space. It was like a square inside of a square, really strange. And we never figured out how to use it. And then one day... Uh, it's like the eight and a half floor in Being John Malcolm. Yes, it's something like that, so just a non-space in the space, you know, nobody could really use it. It was not visible, you know, when you do a show, you don't want to put something in there because people need to go almost like bending over to enter and then it's small and it's lower. And and then Raya just said, oh, this is so perfect for a little library. Let's, let's bring some of our books here. We already, everybody had their own collection. And they had their books as well. So we said like, yeah, let's do that. And we made some shelves, filled the whole little box with bookshelves. And then we just brought our stuff in and we realized like, it's half empty. You know, it's it's not, it's, it's too many shelves and not enough books. And, <laughs> and then we just said, okay, let's start the library, you know, people can bring more books and then we fill these shelves because now it's it's not looking complete. And we made like an open call, so we decided um, we're going to organize this thing and make an open call on the internet to collect this kind of artist books. And also there was nothing like that in Bulgaria. And it, I mean, still there isn't, I think. I mean, I'm, we were the only people doing that. So it was kind of exciting and people were really interested and everybody started coming so much for these books that like they didn't really care about the show or if there was a performance, you know. It was always everybody, like when you go to a party, people always tend to crowd the kitchen. Yeah. You know, there is a huge living room and there's like amazing music or whatever, records and books and nobody cares. People just stay in this small kitchen. So the same thing happened with the library. <laughs> And then we realized, actually, this this space, it's like 
dysfunctional now because the rest of the of the gallery was like really high ceilings and kind of you know standard space for for displaying art but we just needed something more private you know for all these books to to be collected and presented and so for kind of two years we were receiving a lot of um, also contributions to the library from artists which have found the open call and yeah in the world of artist books there's a big like network so people share and talk so you know sometimes you don't know the person live you haven't seen that person but you feel like you know each other you write each other emails you share each other's work you support that person and then eventually maybe after 10 years you can meet them and say like hey yeah, <laughs> where yeah. have you been <laughs> and <clears throat> so it happened really organically. But all the while you were still working as a yes, manager. Yes, yes. Of course, I fa- could. The family I couldn't afford it otherwise. And um, actually, that's what happened when I got pregnant with my daughter Vivian. So then I had to stop working. I realized at one point. I mean, very late. But <laughs> so, I mean, there is always a point when you say, "Okay, I need to slow." Down, or like I can't be doing this I can't do a hundred things and I also wanted to enjoy it you know because I might not look or strike you as the person that really enjoys these moments in life but then I, I said like I'm having a baby you know it's like a beautiful thing I cannot go back in that time so I realized that and I decided I'm, I don't want to be stressing or thinking about other things so then I left the, the gallery to them to Rosie and... What? No, no. Rosie and Raya, we just kind of started this together, but uh, Raya, shortly after, she went to live in Brussels, and Rosie um, stayed in Sofia, but started more like being interested in organizing uh, concerts and bringing in rock and roll bands. So I couldn't leave it to anybody. I just left, you know, I, I took out my stuff and I left the space, which I was renting, of course. And... Um, which was like really strange feeling. I guess that's when I realized, I felt like, okay, does it look like a defeat or something? Because I invested so much and I, I put like all my uh, energy and emotions into this place. And then all of a sudden I had to just leave it. It didn't feel right, but also I knew if if I kept it, I needed to, you know, to make sense of having it so then I would have to worry or to do extra extra work which I couldn't physically <laughs> manage so you put the books in storage yes I put the books in storage and um, and then I had my baby and <laughs> it was very nice time just to to d- detach myself also from my life and what I was doing and to rethink it because it was actually getting a, a little bit chaotic like too much too many things happening I was like frenetic you know like I realized I'm good at doing a lot of things so I also started I mean a lot of things in 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 that um, aspect so I also got into um, music DJing and organizing things and parties and uh, events and shows and it, it was like very hectic time so then I completely cut out also my connection to the world because I 
I'm very sociable. So at one point I just like went in, into asylum for for a time, you know, with my baby just walking around and being in nature. But you lived with the baby's father. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Of course. Yeah, at that time, yeah. And um, so it was really nice. And afterwards when I gathered my strength, you know, I kind of got back into being myself. Uh, I just realized that I I just wanted to continue with the books, you know. I, this is my thing. This is what it really made so much sense because I, you know, coming from such a mixed kind of background and also having all these various interests, it's just something that puts everything into a frame, but also it, like, contains the possibility of anything being yeah. presented in that format. So also I could continue uh, being in touch and uh, working with the various artists, but then could it could also be something more, like, specific, so I don't spread myself all over the, pre- the place. Because I don't believe people can be good at everything, you know, or, like, this kind of one-man band, you know. I think, yes, you should stick to your thing and just do that to be really good and excellent. So I decided I'll just work with books. And shortly after, I also realized that I was creating like a a movement in a way because there was nothing like that in in Bulgaria, in Sofia. So I started um, being in touch with a lot of young artists and I saw that it's really important for me to also be more like... um, like an educator in a way, because it gives them a a lot of perspective about their work, especially nowadays, um, you know, going to art school and becoming an artist. It's really like one of the most unsettling things that a young person can do because you're doomed or you know that you're going to be making sacrifices and you're not doing something which financially promises you that you'll be okay. So this kind of um, gave me the idea to start organizing workshops, inviting people to talk about their work or how they ended up doing these books, why is it important, why it's important to have like a real network and to connect with people physically, also to present your work physically, not just a website or (laughs) some kind of uh, luminous screen. And... What makes us stick to the analog stuff like that? It's sometimes I think about it. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. Some people because say you were just saying you you you're telling the young artists that it's really important that they that they make this and that they physically that they physically make it and that they actually are present with their body to present it to people. So what? Why? I mean, what did they? What did you tell them? Uh, I don't know. I I don't really formulate it like in one sentence, but <laughs> I guess just being around me and seeing that, I think the most inspiring thing probably is just um, being and doing. So I just surround myself with really interesting people, and I have so many friends which are actually real in the terms that we have this common passion and and. Uh, I spend a lot of time like talking and uh, uh, thinking and uh, making books and so 
it's it's really like it really makes me happy so it's one of the things to be happy and also to be connected with like real people so something which is not uh, entirely ego related it's a little bit like um, i guess what people have about team sports you know so in the in the art world which is completely becoming like ego driven and uh, money driven and completely about yeah. Winner a projection takes it all. yeah yeah also it's very political nowadays because of all the agendas that the different governments and organizations push forward so it's also subsidized by institutions i mean there's a lot of uh, of things behind that i don't want to go into that you know my i'm very political person so i always see these things i mean i don't believe in this like art you know it's detached from from the real world and actually we are so affected by politics all the time so the books is kind of a democratic uh way of like doing work also presenting it also distributing it also sharing it and also making it possible that people can participate in the art market because it's really the connection between normal people and 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 the artists uh not everybody can afford an, an original artwork yeah and this is very like um i don't know in a way i find it quite noble you know for an artist because to produce a book uh, it takes a lot of time obviously it's a really like a process and it's a lot of efforts and quite often you don't even break even like you don't even go to zero from perspective of what what you invested and the money you put into printing i'm talking about self publishing of course so so then it's really giving out something to others and uh, which which is mostly why i think it's important because it's it helps you like cure your i think artists have a, a common like ego issue at, at you know at one point it's all about you your art the the way you see the world and and i was just uh, the other day i went to an andreas just library in alpenhof and i was looking at this book um of a south american artist a fem- female artist i can't remember the name now but there was this quote that struck me it said it was a letter she wrote to her lover and she said in love i need i also need you in my art i don't need you i can be on my own so it, it's really actually that's what it is you know and then she continued uh, so art is independence so is masturbation <laughs> so kind of this funny um metaphor and this is what it's art sometimes it's like masturbating mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. with the world <laughs> happening around you so you're just enjoying yourself and pushing the buttons but yeah to make the books it's also thinking about the response of others and so yeah. you know they're going to be out there and thinking about also what kind of um audience you have mm, you know physically um constructing something so thinking about paper the ink about the colors about the smell about the thickness about all the physicality so this makes it's kind of a meditation i find you know so then you you get abstracted a little bit more from your work and what you created as an egocentric artist and then you make this other thing you know so books are really great for generally also because there's this 
um, yeah, the ongoing question about the, the death of print and so on and so on. Of course, there's also like somebody's agenda behind that. <laughs> we know that it's not going to happen. Obviously, in the global market of books, it's a big crisis. So people tend to lead, read less and less. And I think that in the with the future generation, probably books like standard books will be almost extinct. So also these artist books are kind of saving the the format. <laughs> mm-hmm. So tell me how, you know, the transition from, I mean, when you had your daughter, Valeria? Oh, Vivian. Vivian. Yes. So when you had Vivian, uh, you, you put the books in storage and then... How did you end up opening Hip Hip Library, which is also a store? Well, I actually, she was two, I think, two. So I couldn't stand it anymore that like I was keeping all these books like in a in boxes in a in a basement kind of storage, and I really got this uh, impulse like the to re- restart my social life and to to do something that something new you know also by being in the business with my mom I really felt like I could start like a business you know because the books were never a business and they should not be a business for me I think and so I opened this bar <laughs> I was just walking down the road and very close to where we live I wanted to find actually a space for a library and I just saw this guy putting up a sign that uh, this place was up for rent and I opened the door and went inside. It was tiny, like 15 square meters and uh, a really steep ladder would take you downstairs where there was just a bathroom and a small storage. And I just said like, what is this place? And he said, well, it's, it's a bar, you know, it used to be a bar. I said, okay, I'm taking it. <laughs> so then, because the this is another thing. So I just got this space because I really liked it. And then I had to reinvent how the books could coexist with the bar. Because the bar was a bar. People were there drinking, uh, coming with pizza fingers. <laughs> and yeah, it's also usually pretty dark. And no, yeah, it, it was dark. Uh-huh. During the day, no. It was really like lo- large glass vitrines. So it's kind of on the on the road, you know, mm-hmm. you see from inside, outside. So during the day it was pretty light, but yeah, at night, obviously it's a bar atmosphere. So then I started curating my um, selection. So the things that I would take to the bar would like would be specifically chosen for, let's say, also to p- put people in a certain mood or to, to make a statement. So sometimes I would completely just uh, put some politically related uh, zines or um, things to do with uh, with I don't know something that was happening around in the city so this little display collection because it was very tiny where the space I could display the books it was constantly changing so from my bigger library I would just take out little pieces and show them and then take them back in and actually it became really nice um, place to hang out so uh, a lot of people were actually much more into the books when they were in the bar. Some of these people I've never seen coming to my library or to my um, gallery. Also, I learned a lot about uh, night uh, 
nightclubs and the business behind the bar because having a bar is a lot like totally different to having a business with with clothes it's another dynamics different kind of uh, things you know you need to know paperworks and uh, yeah a lot of things did you bartend yourself i i also bartended yeah and and then a girl came to work for me she was uh, uh, studying in the academy the art academy Martina Vacheva is her name and she just started making these drawings for little books while working at the bar and now she's actually quite good like starting to become really famous kind of artist and and she really got into that through working at the bar you know being surrounded with these books and just and then a whole kind of vibe of this kind of people coming their artists like drawing drinking you know chilling at the bar it it became like really a circle so from there i had my son and i decided i can't keep up with <laughs> with the bar and my daughter and like being you know having to go late at night and uh, so you got pregnant the second time yes. while you had the bar yes mm -hmm. yes and then just the last person i worked there with really nice girl daniela i just told her like do you want to take the business because i could see that she's like entrepreneurial you know she wanted to do something more than just being a bartender and i really just wanted to keep this place so i could still feel it's my own and i could still meet my friends there and uh, so i like just sold her the business for, like for for nothing you know everything i did and the space and the company and so she took over and now i'm still going there it's my favorite place you know it's what is it called a doom now it's called doom <laughs> so yeah it kept the spirit so you're invited in zurich at esther epstein's messer salon embassy zurich north with a hip hip library mm -hmm. i guess it's really a continuation of yeah it's really being here you know uh being here and being myself and yeah I'm showing some of the books so again a little bit like with the bar so I I was challenged to make a selection because my library is quite big so more than 500 books and and obviously I can't just dislocate that but does the hip hip library in Sofia have a location yeah it does it does now like since uh, since a year we've We've moved to a new location, which is probably where we're gonna stay. It's also like a, more like a studio, but library, and we have some printing space there. So, so there's production happening. Yeah, yeah. There's well. also product. There's always a lot of things happening. Some production, some people looking at books, some people trying to work, some people listening to music. It's quite a active space, but it's good, and I think it's it's nice. Um, place to to work and to meet people it feels very it feels very right so how did you choose what you're going to bring to switzerland mm, i don't know i guess just also by my egocentric <laughs> drive so i just brought the, the things i really like to currently because it's also my taste is mutating and changing so the things i'm interested in currently or the things which i thought would open to a conversation that I would be interested in having and that's how I selected them. When I came I 
realized that some things were missing. And so I <clears throat> I organized for some extra books to be shipped. shipped later because I knew like, okay, I need this and this. And now I see the people and I know what kind of things are going to be interesting for them. So it was also second selection afterwards. So the library is in the co-op Meralds Wohnen. Yes. And you decided to open it up. Every, was it every Wednesday? or? Yeah, it was actually... <clears throat> I was there more than everywhere. This was just the official times. But um, I'm a very present person. So like people, once they saw me that I'm there and when the door was open, they would walk in. And it was really nice. Actually, there it's uh, it's such a small kind of community, you know, around this uh, uh, com commune that just you connect with people in a more organic way. Like, let's say if the library was in Langstrasse or something, I would not have this um, kind of bonding, I guess, with people. It would be maybe ongoing, coming in and going out, like a lot of people coming, but I don't think it would be more quality, the connection. So I'm actually very happy to be there and, and also to to experience the the life, like the normal life of these people, everyday normal people, you know. Otherwise, it's just being a tourist. <laughs> yeah, so you, you you see them during the maybe either the first few hours or the last few hours of their day when they come yeah, home. Yeah, actually, a lot of people there are families with small children. So a lot of the time, one or, you know, one of the parents is, is going around with the kids, taking care of them. and So there is life also in between these mm -hmm. working hours. Mm -hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's it's really like a lively place, you know. People use the space. There is a lot of uh, public space there and the people talk. They, I don't know, it's really nice. It's It's very sociable. And... It, okay, the challenge was to make people come from Zurich, like from the center to, to that place. Okay, obviously I connected with people and I found a lot of friends, but, you know, it was also like to try to make them interested in me personally as a person and then come to visit me and not to push them like, you know, this is my project, come to see my books. Actually, books are nothing without the people behind them. So, so is anything, you know, and then people started coming to visit me and it was very organic, but this is also how I generally do things. I don't want to push things. I don't want to imply to people that they need to be interested in this or, you know, it's very organic. You either just get into it or you don't get into it. So some people would come and visit me and don't even look at the books, just drink a beer and have a talk. It's fine. And then they would leave. But today, can you sustain yourself from because you were you were working uh, in the family business, and then you had the bar, and now can you sustain now, yourself from um, the library? Not really. Not really. Not really. Actually, now I'm just starting to visualize like ways, and I I'm projecting. Because this is so difficult for me. Okay, so firstly, I have the financial uh, kind of stability. Okay, let's say that I won't be left or my kids, you know, we are fine. Their father is 
is supporting them and I don't need to really stress about that. So that's making things different for me. So now I'm making plans and I have some ideas how to make money as well, but I don't want to make money with this with this activity. So for me also the shop, it kind of started just because people wanted to leave their books and people wanted to buy books, not because I wanted to sell books. And I don't, I don't take any profit in doing so you know you walk in you buy the book then all the money goes to the artist wow yes so this are it's not i'm not a distributor i'm not a commercial bookseller it's just a way okay democratically you want to have this book okay pay and get it and i i realized i can't be doing this i can't be pushing to be commercially selling then it changes the whole perspective for me and also I I become uh, just like a dealer. <laughs> and then the people that I meet, the artists, they become just, I don't know, producers for me. You know, somebody to to get stock from, you know. And I don't want to go in that perspective. So mostly what I'm doing now, I mean, the past few years, I write projects. So um, with the festival or with other things I'm doing, I... I registered a foundation, so I write projects and I apply for funding for these projects. And then when I get the funding, I have a, like a job for, let's say, seven months when I'm organizing the festival. Mm -hmm. I'm paying myself yeah. through that money. So kind of, yeah, looking for interesting applications and costs and so on. And with the festival, actually, I could sustain myself in a way that it's uh, it makes sense. Uh, but uh, it's really a lot of work. It's so difficult. Like so you I'm, started it uh, last year, right? Uh, actually, two years ago, mm -hmm. I, I did the first event, which was not called Sophie Art Book Fair at the time. It was more like underground and experimental. What I didn't know what would, would happen. Um, so it was really big success. And then from there, I kind of decided to to make it a little bit more structured and uh, more... Not so underground because, yeah, I mean, I love to be to stay underground, but it's not how you get to people mostly. And then Sofia Book Fair happened. Obviously, it was a lot of organizing, and this is really good. I mean, my my knowledge about also business and managing and how to make a project, uh, <laughs> you know, it is a lot of business in that. It's not just, ah, I have this great idea, I have so many friends that are artists with books, let's invite them. It's like a huge amount of organization and, and of uh, preparation. So all the years that I was doing these weird jobs, I thought they were weird, you know, actually it, nothing is wasted, you know, your experience, it, it comes into use. So now I realized that I could do some ongoing projects like that to also sustain myself. And then I would like to, to do um, something more oriented towards, um, like, let's say, an educational project. So to give something to, to students or to art students or anybody actually that I was missing at the time when I lived in Bulgaria so like an alternative extra um, you know extra source of of knowledge and that's now something I'm thinking about so organizing like um, a platform for um, artists or publishers or 
anybody actually interested in coming to Sofia so people can come and share knowledge with with students or whoever and then host them like a residency but for teachers I'm applying <laughs> <laughs> yeah so it's this is my idea now to start this project and I think um, yeah it could really work well and everybody who is a resident artist at Esther's produces a zine in the end mm -hmm. what are you planning to do or did you have you done it or is it already in production or yeah what? I'm doing it now actually I mean I started doing it a few weeks ago kind of having ideas the thing is that I really like have so much so much um material let's say and also my experience here has been very um multifaceted so at the end i'm actually working now on four different <laughs> zines but only one is going to be like the official one produced by the residency but the others are just like different aspects of my experience here so i just had this idea and it's, it's been since the beginning that actually what am i here for people i'm like a tourist it's because i come here for like three months and i'm this you know person like free of uh, you know i don't i'm floating around i'm flexible i don't have a, a like a, a schedule. strict schedule yes yeah. so this makes it very romantic also in a way for people to be observing and to be around me because i can be free and i can be spontaneous so this is really like being a tourist and on the other hand I'm also kind of advertising or let, let's say I'm um, representing my country. So a lot of... or You're an ambassador. Place. Yes, kind of I am. But, you know, a lot of people have no idea about Bulgaria. And I'm some of them just say you're the first Bulgarian person I meet. So then I, I'm also kind of an agent. So I just said, okay, let's call this thing Balkan Tourist. So Balkan Tourist is the oldest existing uh, touristic agency that was founded in uh, during communism in Bulgaria. It still operates. But it's really funny because when you say Balkan tourists to anybody coming from the Balkans, like they're really associated with this kind of decadent, trashy hotels, you know, because it's not the best agency, but it still works and it's got all the connections with these weird hotels, like, I don't know, like communist style architecture nothing has changed inside the interiors are like untouched from the from the 60s you know wow. so i i'm making this um a zine now which is gonna be called Balkan tourist and it's me being a tourist here but also me showing what is like to be where i'm coming from that's funny <laughs> just a game but actually that's what I'm doing here as well you know this is the, this is the idea so <clears throat> first step is to bring people to the library in Erlikon second step is to bring them to Sofia <laughs> hey thank you so much for <laughs> thank coming you. for taking thank the time for thanks being for, so open thanks for inviting me and waiting for me two hours <laughs> Jesus but today was extreme <laughs>